Hello, everybody. This is Noah and John, and we are from Urban Digs, and this is Talking Manhattan. And Johnny, we got a good one for you today. We got uh, an old colleague, an old friend, Rafael De Niro of the De Niro team. I mean, I really don't think this guy needs an introduction. He's been in business for almost 20 years since 2004, does hundreds of millions of dollars sales annually. I think he's done over $4 billion in sales cumulative. And we got him for the next 15, 20 minutes to share what he is seeing on the ground, boots in the ground today. And Rafael, I'm going to get right to it. Please tell us and tell our audience what you see that is going on in the markets today. Sure. Good morning, guys, and thanks for having me on. Um, one of the big changes I've noticed over the last, I'd say, nine to 12 months uh, is there seems to be a real bifurcation between unrenovated apartments or townhouses and renovated ones. There was always somewhat of a delta and, you know, it would take a lot longer to sell unrenovated places versus sort of turnkey triple mint. But that delta in terms of velocity and pricing, velocity meaning how long it takes to market and sell, has certainly increased over the last year, maybe even the last 18 months. So aside from that, um, one of the other things that I've noticed recently uh, is there seems to be a outsized phenomenon of off-market apartment sales. Um, it seems to be all categories kind of above, I'd say, three to four million. Um, there was always a bit of that in the market at the very high end or the super prime category, say north of 25 or 30 million. But it was really a phenomenon that sort of took hold, I thought, in kind of L.A. and Palm Beach at the ultra high end or super prime market. It wasn't something we saw a lot here. Now it's kind of permeated the entire luxury market. And I'm sort of getting more inbound uh, solicitations from brokers pitching off-market properties than I ever have in 20 years, by far. 10x the number that I ever did previously. So that, I think, you know, is, is partly a COVID phenomenon, but just other kind of shifting um, um, trends that often start in California. I've noticed even the team concept really came from California. There were no teams in New York City when I started. Maybe there were one or two, um, but there were a lot of teams in the West Coast market, and that sort of is a kind of similar shift over the lot, but over a much longer time frame. Awesome. I mean, we've 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 covered we've covered a lot of ground in the first thirty seconds. I mean, this is just awesome. I, I yeah. want to go back to one of the things that you mentioned early on, which is that difference between renovated versus unrenovated. And this is one of the analyses that that we've been doing, and we've kind of seen the same thing, which is that spread is really sort of blown out, especially yeah. after COVID, and just seems it just it hasn't seemed to to close as you would normally expect it. And I'm curious when you look at that delta. Is, is it something that can be cured by price? I mean, if you price an unrenovated unit, I mean, way below what a renovated unit would cost, can you still close that gap? Or are there structural challenges that buyers are looking at? Like they just don't even want to deal with it regardless of the price. Yeah, I think that in, in one sense, they don't want to deal with it. And also renovations take a really long time. And in some aspects, they take longer than they used to. Um, part of that is kind of, legacy or hangover supply chain issues from the pandemic. Um, and also the cost of a renovation has gone up dramatically. All of the different sort of components um, that are required are much more expensive than they were prior to COVID. Um, so I think those are the kind of 
two main reasons uh, why people don't seem to be quite as eager to embark on renovations as they used to. You know, I remember back in the day, we kind of used to tell people the way to create value in Manhattan is to do a renovation. Um, but that does not seem to be uh, quite as worthwhile of a, as a proposition as it used to. Raphael, um, what about on the sell side? Are sellers aware? I, I, I'm curious to know how aligned sellers are with reality of the condition of their property. Are most sellers aware of this phenomenon of 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 the penalty? Of it's not just unrenovated. I feel like if you have yeah. a property that was renovated seven years ago but needs updates, you you're you're in that unrenovated category. Yeah, right? that is a very astute comment, and I should have mentioned that. From an appraisal standpoint, if I'm not mistaken, and there might be some argument about this, but roughly eight to 10 years, the value of your renovation goes to zero effectively. Um, there are exceptions to that rule, like a historic um, kind of museum, museum quality restoration. That might be an exception, but generally speaking, you're absolutely right. Um, so that's, a, that's also a really important point. Um, I think people who are going to market with estate sale condition apartments know that there's going to be, you know, a major renovation involved. But there is some kind of cognitive dissonance with places that are five, six, seven, eight years old, or maybe a really incredible renovation at the time, but it was really beaten up and shop worn by a lot of traffic and lots of people or pets. Um, and those sellers in many cases have not had the benefit of sort of touring a lot of brand new triple mint turnkey places. So, so that can be difficult. Um, if, if it's not like in such a state of disrepair that it's obvious that it's going to be completely renovated. And by the way, that creates a whole other issue in co-ops, which I've been dealing with for 20 years, which is, you know, the sort of conundrum people get in families typically with estate sales. The co-op board really wants to maintain the value of the shares in the building. And the average person just perusing online may not know the sort of nuance and detail of the condition of an apartment. And there's often a struggle where the board, you know, doesn't really like the price that's being proposed by a prospective buyer, but that buyer is taking into account that, you know, they may have a three-year renovation on their hands. Some of those buildings have summer work rules. You can only work in the summer, et cetera. Uh, and sometimes that will tank uh, a board uh, application. And in fact, the only, I only recall one turndown in my life, in my career, and, and that was the exact reason. Uh, the board just could not accept the price, but the price was reflective of a three-year, you know, $1,500 a foot renovation that was required. Yeah, crazy. Crazy dynamics and, and slow markets um, when you have that kind of stuff going on. Um, yeah. I want to circle back um, to what we were discussing before. I, I, I know that you're you have glimpses of the ultra high end. I know you see the high end, the ultra high end. Um, what are you seeing there? Are you seeing anything notable? Um, Pieta tears, anything going on there, or any local sectors, local areas of Manhattan that might be outperforming others? Sure. Um, so the Pieta the Pieta tear market to me is really robust. And in some ways it's more robust than the primary user market at the very high end. Um, I've noticed that a lot of clients and different people that I've, that I've dealt with and just anecdotal um, situations, a lot of people who have sort of transplanted themselves to different states, if they're at that kind of super prime level in terms of real estate, they don't really sell their apartments here. A lot of them seem to be keeping them as pied-a-terres 
using them as you know hotel suites effectively for friends and family and when they come to the city. Um, and we are seeing a little bit of an uptick in foreign buyers coming back. That had really ebbed, especially during the Trump years, and it's starting to increase a little bit. Um, one of the pockets or one of the sub-markets that, that would be a beneficiary of that is Hudson Yards, uh, where we're seeing quite a bit of that activity now. Interesting. And, you know, you this brings up another point, which is that, you know, it, when it comes down to it, especially in Manhattan and Brooklyn, real estate is, is it's a very, very hyper local thing like condos in Hudson Yards. New buildings are going to be trading vastly different than, say, 10 year old condos in Midtown, only a few blocks away. And so yeah. I, I want to use that as a, as a jumping point to talk about negotiability and discounts out there, because we often like to talk about discounted rates sort of at a median level. Like this is what you can expect on a median level, half above half below. But I'm curious when you get down there and you're seeing, I mean, the listing behind you is absolutely beautiful. The listing, the discount for that might be something totally different than say a co-op in, in Yorkville. Sure. And I'm curious if you could talk to, uh, to discounts and some of the negotiability that you're seeing right now. Sure. Discounts are kind of all over the place. Um, you even actually still are seeing not quite bidding wars. There are some that I've, that I've experienced and heard of in the last year, but you're seeing places sometimes trade for ask. Um, more frequently than I was, let's say, a year ago. Um, but there are also discounts that can range from anywhere from 5 to 15% in some cases. Um, Hudson Yards is one of the buildings that was discounting heavily um, from what the original Schedule A prices uh, were set at pre-COVID pre and during the beginning of COVID. Um, so that's a circumstance where, you know, there's a couple billion dollars of inventory across a couple of buildings for them to sell still. Um, and they are in a position where they can do that. And it's not because of distress or because of some problem under the surface. It's just, a, uh, like to your point, a hyper-local situation where you're seeing good discounts, um, but there's a reason for it. Then there's other situations with resale apartments. Like I just said, I heard about an apartment um, that went into contract after a few days in Tribeca last week even on a shortened holiday week, and it, it went at the ask, and this was just never even put on the market. And you have to assume when something's not on the put on the market, the asking price is, is gonna be full for sure, right? It's not gonna be like a discounted asking price. So yeah. Um, yeah. we're in a somewhat inventory constrained environment. Um, that's part of what's driving that. Um, I read a figure recently, which was that we've had the lowest number of multifamily permit applications filed in Manhattan this year since 2010. That kind of tells you all you need to know about the inventory landscape. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy, right? And, and yeah. you know, John, we talked about a couple of years ago that there's going to be a potential inventory problem going on for all these reasons. How are they building? I mean, there's restrictive financing, right? Um, Raphael, we were talking before the show. There's, there's, there's the capital markets are are not very amenable right now to to giving out money. Um, it, it, it's, it's a there's a lot of gloomy stuff going on. It's a transactional hit. I don't know what the price hit is yet. I mean, our models yeah. say that we're down seven, eight, nine percent. I don't, I don't know from from March, April. I don't know what that's ultimately going to show. Um, but when I look at the market, I mean, it feels like it's been five stabs, you know, and, and we're at that fifth stab and it's like, all right, it's starting to hurt a little bit. I'm starting to bleed. <laughs> yeah. I was able to handle the first couple, but now it's yeah. a little too much because it's the duration of this and the environment. And now you got commission structures, rough data. How does this market get out of this? 
I think it's just going to take time. Um, you know, the the one thing I, I can't help, just given that I started um, back in 04, I can't help but think a lot about the sort of Lehman event, September 1508, the lead up to Lehman and the aftermath. Um, that really kind of, for me, crystallized what New York City real estate is about, um, which is, it, it, it feels to me almost like a an eight lane super highway, like I-95, and you have all of these cars and traffic coming and going in each direction. And occasionally there's an accident and it creates a pileup and you have an issue for a while. It could be six months, it could be a year, it could be two years, but then demand from all over the world and all over the rest of the country and from local demand builds up invariably and it has to be satiated somehow. Um, and I think that that will happen on the other side of this kind of um, unusually high rate environment. And again, you know, when I started, uh, rates were not that much, uh, not that much different than they are now. I think they were around six, six and a half. Um, and, you know, the market was moving along quite well at that time. Well, let me just say, I, I'm, I'm glad you said that. And the reason why is I'm going to get on, get a little bit on my soapbox here, which is that yeah, yeah. I, uh -oh. I, I absolutely love this city. I mean, it's the kind of thing where I, I will go away, I'll come in and I'm, you know, coming back from the airport and you can see the skyline. You think like, I'm home. I love it here. Yeah. I love, I love getting out. I love walking on the streets and seeing a thousand other people. I mean, it's a social experience. And I think that, you know, the whole work from home phenomenon, which drove folks to the suburbs, I think that's it's it's great if you want to if that's what you want to do. But I think there's that human element that's that's missing from that. And I think we're going to eventually kind of come back to it. And I'm excited to see where this city goes from that. I mean, don't get me wrong. The the traffic is horrible. It, it smells from time to time. And it's it's a crowded city, but it's a it's a vibrant, energetic city. And I and I completely agree with you, uh, Rafael, that it's, it's like I-95 after an accident. We were sitting in that lane waiting to go. And one of the things that that crossed my mind when you were talking is that that I know you've done a lot of stuff downtown, and there's a lot of revitalization that happened downtown. You look at the Tribeca neighborhoods coming up, the 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 new the you know the Hudson Hudson area uh, coming up, and as you look at Manhattan and you kind of look at some of the new neighborhoods that are popping up, even Hudson Yards, for example. Do you think that there's room for development on the scale that that brings people back people back to the city in in such that it's it's going to be a, a remarkable place to live in the next say ten to fifteen years? I'm not sure the you know the the development that is most sorely needed to make that happen is probably workforce housing and and not necessarily just affordable housing, but housing for the middle class. Um, that seems to be where we're really falling short here. Um, in terms of office and, and the other sort of food groups or, or categories, I think that we have enough established to, to always attract a lot of people to want to move here and live here. Um, but we, we seem to not have nearly enough uh, different categories of housing to people. Right. Yeah, no, I tend to agree. I'm, I'm very curious to see how this wraps up because I'm, I'm in full yeah. agreement there. Yeah, the yeah. thing to me about New York City, you know, that we do have that I don't think is going away is we have the greatest hospitals, universities, museums, anywhere on the planet. And I, for one, have clients who come from the Middle East and they stay in a hotel suite or in a long-term rental for six months while they get cancer treatments for themselves or a family member at Sloan Kettering. They're never going to stop coming as long as Sloan Kettering is there. Yeah, and we're an international reach, and um, you know, there could be an argument 
made that that there's always sideline cash. You know, the sideline cash theory, the pent up demand theory, and one can say there's always out there. You can't really measure it. You know, um, with stocks, my argument would be that it's a zero sum game for every buyer. There's a seller. I guess you could say the same for here. But uh, you know, I'm gonna fire a couple of questions. And John, this is gonna go, go to you too. Raphael first, then John. What is okay. your feeling on pent up demand? For this market because it has been a low transactional market for quite a few months uh me first sure Raphael, you go first sure. um yeah so i mean I, I again this is just kind of looking back at 9 11 um which i kind of had a front row view of literally and figuratively i was living in the financial district at that time on john street um seeing what happened downtown post 9 11 i saw a six to nine month freeze after the event and then a, a pretty sizable uh, amount of activity on the heels of that. Um, after Lehman, September 1508, that bounce back was much more pronounced. For us, meaning me and my team, it started in spring of 2010. That's when we started kind of getting out there, doing some sales. We were a little surprised. Um, by the end of 2010, we were pretty much back to, to a decent amount of activity and by 11, you know, even better and 12 was what ended up being one of our best years. Um, so I, I would expect that to happen again. I think rates would have to dip below 5% and not the Fed rate, but mortgage rates. Um, and I think that that would unleash quite a bit of demand. I think it would unleash a lot of people moving who are stuck in, you know, sub 4% mortgages who don't want to move. Um, and it, yeah, it would, it would definitely stimulate a bunch of activity. And I think, you know, in the next couple of years, that will happen. Let's see. John? Well, I mean, first, of all, I'm honored to share the spotlight. And I, I agree with everything that Raphael said. And I think that you, you look at where rates are now. And it's no surprise that the, the market really just stopped on a dime in April of 2022, right? That second week, right after taxes went out, April 2022, the market, the contract sign numbers just started plummeting and we've, we've been in this extended pause. Now, I'm in agreement that a lot of this has to do with rates. And I don't think it's necessarily the height of rates. It's more of the expectation of what future rates are. So if we can kind of bring rates down to a more normal long-term level and stay there, I think Raphael's absolutely right. I think that's going to grease the wheels on the, the buy side, which is important, but also the sell side, which has just been locked up for so long. And, you know, it's, I'm really hoping, and I'm bullish on Manhattan real estate, given the information I have today. So don't at me if I'm wrong here, because I'm just, I'm speculating. But I do think that the, we are in what I'm hoping is a pause that refreshes. And I think once we get to the summer, I, or sorry, rather the spring, I'm hoping we're going to see a little bit more listing volume. The buyers will start coming back because it's still a great market for buyers. And because there's low activity, you got the negotiation, you, you got the choice. So hopefully we can kind of get this machine running again without any of the panic that's marked some of the other episodes in which the, the buy side just kind of walked away from the ball. So, uh, yeah. And long, you know, I, I was much more worried like middle of 18 when I was seeing and hearing yeah. about a new 300 unit building being announced every week. Right. It was, it was obvious to me then that there was going to be an issue. Um, and that overhang of, of new development inventory really kind of zapped the energy out of the market in 18 and 19. Um, there were also some issues, um, with sort of like the taper tantrum and the markets right at the same time from the fed. Um, but we worked through all of that excess inventory or the majority of it through COVID, um, especially in 21, um, and a little bit in 22. So in a way, I feel like we have much more of a clean slate for when we do start to recover more meaningfully. 
Um, I think we're we're kind of building out a bit of a, a bit of a foundation at the moment. Yeah, what what a great point. Like structurally, the the the, the structural dynamics are are not really in place for a crash, given what you're talking about here with the yeah. um with the the inventory situation and the development situation. Um, yeah. It seems to, to 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 it's like it's like putting a piece of of a story together in the future that's going to lay yeah. the foundation for this potential yeah. recovery. And, and you know the the new yeah. dev boom that we had from 13 to like 17, the really Goldilocks period that was born out of the capital market shutting the spigot off after Lehman. Yeah, yeah, very very good point. I mean, listen, um, I love the points that you guys made about rates falling, unlocking sellers to move. Because that's nobody's talking much about that. Um, they're talking about how rates are going to come down, buyers are going to come in, but they're not talking about how rates coming down is going to is going to take away that 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 um, restrictiveness that a lot of people are locked in. Go ahead, John. Right, and, and I was going to say I don't think it's necessarily the rate itself; it's more what the rate represents. And rates coming down, I mean, even most of the sales in Manhattan are all cash, so it's not, the rates not really doesn't really have the effect that most people think it's think it has. But it does have that sort of psychological effect. They see rates come down, it's like, all right, well, the economy is in a better place. It's staying put. It's there's an element of stability there, which I think is really what speaks to buyers. And I think that we're missing that right now. And as long as that buyer enthusiasm is dampened and sellers are kind of locked in place, we're really not going to get going. And I'm hoping that we can, as I said, restart this in the spring. Yeah, John, yeah. you're absolutely right. I think it's 65% of all transactions in Manhattan below 96th Street, four million and up, uh, are all cash. Wow. Yeah. This yeah. is a lot of money, a lot of money chasing properties here. All right, but, we're, we're but, getting... but also it just hurts the sentiment generally when people keep reading these headlines about seven and a half, eight percent mortgages to John's point. Exactly. It's, right. exactly. It's a sentiment it's a issue. Yeah. Totally agree. Um, all right. We got we got one last question. We're almost out of time and I'm just going to wrap it up after this. Um, this has been really, sure. really fun and informative. And I want to I want to circle back around to the agents, the professional agents that are listening yeah. to this. And hopefully some agents have have gained some actionable insights and nuggets of wisdom. I know I have. Um, from this conversation. And um, Raphael, um, what could agents do in this in this challenging environment right now to maybe sow the seeds for productivity growth down the road? Yeah, this is the time to do it. So, the, you know, there, there is no better time than a, than a bit of a slowdown to raise your level of education, right? Read voraciously anything that you can, trade publications, the journal, Bloomberg, anything related to markets, uh, and real estate, which which are all kind of intrinsically tied, um, as well as getting out and seeing every building that you haven't been in, going to as many open houses and previews as you possibly can, um, you know, becoming familiar with who the developers are, who the brokers are, the brokerage heads, all of those holes that you may have um, in your sort of knowledge set, this is the time to fill them. Um, in addition to that, I think it's really good to be doing continuing ed. Uh, during COVID, I just decided to get my construction manager's certificate, not for any specific reason. I just felt like I didn't quite understand some of the ins and outs of the construction business that, that I kind of felt like I should as a broker. Um, that was a certificate that was offered from Pace University. I did it on Zoom. It was great. Um, those are the kind of things that you want to be doing now when you have some downtime. I'm actually taking notes on that one. I, that, that's awesome stuff. <laughs> hey, listen, you're an advisor. If I was a buyer or seller, I would want my my real estate broker to be an expert on the market. I'm just saying. So, and if, yeah. yeah, that's what it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be a Sherpa, period. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I love your Sherpa. Yeah. This has been fantastic. Raphael, you're, you're the man. It's great to spend some time with you. We need to do it more often. I feel like it's been too long. 
Um, but but thank you for the time. Um, Rafael De Niro of the De Niro team over at Element. Um, that is John Walkup. I am Noah Rosenblatt. This has been a Talking Manhattan podcast, and we'll catch you guys next time. Thank you, Rafael. Thanks, guys. That, that was awesome.